seated and turn with me to page 1231, if you're using a pew Bible, page 1231, and uh, continuing on to 12, prophecy of Joel, prophecy of Joel, chapter 1, it's opposite uh, the end of Hosea, which is on page 1230, so page 1231, and then continuing on to 1232, if you're using a pew Bible. Joel, chapter 1. My friends, hear the word of God. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, ye elders, and give ear all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. But the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine for it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. Lament like a virgin, gird it with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priest mourn who minister to the Lord. The field is wasted, the land mourns, for the grain is, the wine is dried up, the oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up, and the fig tree has withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests, Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. The grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land. 
into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the cloths. Storehouses are in shambles. Barns are broken down. For the grain has withered. How the animals groan. The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. O Lord, to you I cry out. For fire has devoured the open pastures and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you. For the water brooks are dried up Fire has devoured the open pastures. And beloved people of God, today with a title of creepy, crawling, crawling, gnawing, munching locust, we see that the prophet warns against total devastation. Against total devastation. He calls the leaders and the people repentance. The prophet warns against total devastation and calls the leaders and the people to repentance. Now who was Joel? Of course he's one of the, what we call the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and so forth. Um, His name means Jehovah is God, or the Lord is God. We can say Jehovah, we can say Yahweh. So Yah. El, Joel, the Lord is God. And you notice that he is called the son of Bethuel. Now this is the only place where the name Bethuel appears. So we don't know much about him, but what's interesting is that Bethuel means God delivers. So it appears that this is very much a godly line. You know that many times people will name their children after biblical characters or or biblical concepts, mercy, grace, prudence, and so forth. Um, Well, that's what we see here. Now, we're going to come back to that later as well. Uh, But it it appears, then, that this is a at at least two-generation godly line. He was an active resident of Judah. Judah, of course, is a southern kingdom. Remember, there had been... Um, the breaking between the northern kingdom, the kingdom that became Israel, the ten northern tribes, and the southern tribes, Judah, Benjamin, Levi. And um, he was undoubtedly then an active resident of Judah, the southern kingdom, and probably of Jerusalem. Now, when did he prophesy? Well, there is, we're, we're not really sure. There are at least a couple of ideas, at least a couple, um, uh, one is that he uh, prophesied early in the reign of King Joash. He reigned from 877 to 837 B.C., so 9th century B.C. Um, we can see parallels uh, with the prophecy of Obadiah, uh, which would be in that time period. 
And uh, Amos, from a later period, is apparently aware of Joel's prophecies. There is an argument, though, that can be made that perhaps 400 BC. And in a sense, it doesn't matter. God hasn't clearly revealed this to us, and it's okay. Um, Because one of the things that that does, by not having a specific time period in view, it enables us more readily, perhaps, to apply it, to understand how universal this is, how it applies universally. It, It applies across the board, across the centuries. And so that's what we see here today. Now, in chapter 1, we're going to see the Lord's devastating judgment. First part of chapter 2, up through verse 17, is the call to repentance. Then chapter 2, verses 18 through 32, we have God's mercy and the pouring out of his Holy Spirit. Finally, in chapter 3, the Lord's judgment against the nations and his abundant blessing upon his people. And of course, there in chapter 3, the very famous passage, multitudes, multitudes, in the valley of decision. Well, that is the background. Let's look, first of all, at the total devastation of the land. And um, look at the various devastators listed. Okay. These creepy, crawly, munching locusts. First of all, the palmer worm. The palmer worm, the New Standard Dictionary says it is, quote, any hairy caterpillar, or like that, that comes out or comes as a devouring pest in moving swarms. Uh, the word there is gazan in the Hebrew. Um, it can mean, therefore, a creeping locust. It can also can also indicate a gnawer or a shearer. The locust, just the term locust, means the one that is multitudinous. Now we're going to be looking in. A, we're going to be talking in just a few moments about the locust. Now, children, the interesting thing about locust. I mean. You know, we all, we've all know what it's like to deal with bugs, right? Well, this is like dealing with bugs like you have never seen before. Because it's literally where it seems like the, when, when they're moving, uh, it seems like the whole ground is moving, okay? They're, they're just, it's just filled, it's just covered. Or if they're, they're flying, it's like a whole swarm so that you can hardly see the sun. And so that's... Um, uh, when we talk about locusts, then we're not just talking about one or two or a hundred or two hundred. We're looking at a multitude, the multitudinous one, locust, the canker worm, canker worm. Uh, this would be a larval moth with wingless females, which prey on fruit trees. Uh, the word yelek can refer to hedge chafer. Um, it, it can also mean to lick, to lap up, licker or lapper, okay? Hungry, in other words, right? Um, and then the term um, caterpillar, or consuming locust, as in the New King James. Um, again, this is a devourer or a stripper. 
Now, as we look, as we give an overview then of this, just for a moment, I want to point out two or three things. First of all, the locust indicates immense masses. Um, that's what the term means, multitudinous. And the other terms here, their great appetite. Their great appetite. Secondly, what I would suggest here is that instead of trying to break this down, it's a little hard to know exactly from a scientific standpoint exactly what type of locust or what stage of locust is being indicated here. It seems to me that what we're really seeing here is just an overwhelming description of locust and using it, talking about it from several different angles. And then thirdly, why four? Four different types. Well, four is the number of completeness. And so it, that's one of the reasons for the four. Now, um, as you think, I, I'm going to give you an historic example here in just a second. A commentator referring to a National Geographic article from 100 years ago talked about how in March 1915, Swarms of adult locusts engulfed Palestine and Syria, what today we would say Israel and Syria, creating thick clouds that blocked the sun. The females, two and a half to three inches long, laid their eggs, about a hundred eggs in a hole four inches deep in the hard soil. The 100 eggs were, quote, neatly arranged in a cylindrical mass about one inch long, and enveloped in a sticky, glutinous secretion, sort of sticky. Now, <clears throat> you take a square meter of soil, or a square yard, okay? So think about this. You can see on the, on, uh, if you take three, three squares, basically, uh, right here on the, on the, uh, the floor. So three times three, okay? That's about a meter, or uh, square. You know how many locust eggs would have been in that area? 65,000 to 75,000. Now you know why I talk about a creepy, crawly locust here, right? Within a few weeks, the locust eggs hatched, and the young locusts marched 400 to 600 feet per day, wiping out all vegetation in their path. It was said that they hopped, quote, much like fleas. In the middle of the spring, they molted, turning into the pupa, P-U-P-A stage, and able to fly since the four wings were still folded up. And uh, at this point, the locusts would walk like run-of-the-mill insects, would leap only when frightened. But again, what a devastating army. So that's what we find here. These are the devastators, locusts. Millions and millions of these. Well, then we have the lamentation, the grieving over the devastation, verses 5 through 7. And it goes, did you notice here in verse 5, it talks about drinkers of wine, you drunkards. Now, this is a reference, really, not just to those who are, uh, who are drunkards, but those whose God is their belly, those who were given over to drink, or by extension, given over to any sensual pleasure. All you drinkers of wine, verse 5, 
because of the new one. The new one was cut off. That's a representation, of course, of God's blessed gifts. But, of course, when it's abused, that's something different. And so all you drinkers of wine, here in verse 5, it has been that wine, that good gift, that you are abusing indeed, has been cut off from your mouth. In verse 6, we see that the enemy has come up. Now, there are some commentators, like John Calvin, who think that this is a reference to an actual nation, an actual army that is invading. Um, There are other commentators, and I would agree with them, that instead of that, this is uh, really a reference to the locusts themselves, that they are like a nation that has come up against my land, because it goes on to, to talk about all the ways in which there was the devastation of the trees and so forth. Uh, If you look at uh, Proverbs uh, chapter 30, Proverbs uh, chapter 30, uh, verses 25 and following, you see the ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their food in the summer. The rock badgers are feeble folk, yet they make their homes in the crags. The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. In other words, they're like an army. And this army, though, has tiny yet vicious teeth. His teeth are the teeth of a lion. He has the fangs of a lioness or a fierce lion. But notice then the total devastation, the bark of the fig tree. The branches are made white. Now, as a result of this, as a result of this uh, devastation, all of Judah was to lament or grieve or cry. Notice the comparison then in verse 8 to a bereaved virgin. You know, one of the most horrible things that can ever happen is for a bride to lose the bridegroom through death. The anticipation, or maybe very early in the in the marriage, uh, there was a in the opposite perspective. There was a a book that was written years ago called At Least We Were. It's about a couple that got married here in Georgia. He married a Georgia peach. And two days later, they were driving down I-75, and they were she was killed and in an automobile accident. And it was at least we were married. Can you imagine how crushing that would be and was for that young man? Well, you can imagine if something like that happened to the bridegroom. So you can you can hear the crying, can you not? Lament, if you will. Lament, cry. And of course, the spiritual reality here, though, is that Judah was cut off from her bridegroom, that is, from the Lord. This, of course, is seen in the cutting off of the offerings. We're going to be looking at this a bit more as well. You see, you've got this literal devastation, but you've also got a picture of something else going on here. And so the cutting off of the offerings, the meat offering, the drink offering, these would not be able to be offered since there was no food left. 
And so all of Judah was to lament, to cry, to grieve. That included the priests. Notice the end of verse 9. The priests mourn, who minister to the Lord. And verse 13, gird yourselves and lament, you priests. These priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn. This, of course, is a statement of fact. They were mourning. But notice also, they were to clothe themselves in sackcloth. These who minister before the altar, verse 13, come, lie all night in sackcloth. So this very rough clothing, which was, of course, a sign of mourning. But not only the priests, but also the farmers and the vine dressers. Look back at verse 11. The farmers and the vine dressers. You see, the field and the land are devastated. And the three staple crops, corn, wine, and oil, corn, grapes, and oil, are gone. The wheat and barley are perished. The wheat, the grain of the rich, the barley, the grain of the poor, and thus rich and poor alike experience this catastrophe. The rich are not spared for their wealth. The poor can claim no right to food. And notice, and trees are affected. The fig tree, the pomegranate tree, which grows about 20 feet tall with a straight stem and outspreading branches, large red blossoms. It's fruit, by the way. The pomegranate is about as big as an orange. It's delicious and refreshing. Maybe you've had a pomegranate before. The palm tree, we all know what those look like. The palm trees, big, tall, about 100 feet tall. You go to, oh, I don't know, Southern California perhaps, or Florida, and you'll see these big, tall palm trees. Uh, Straight trunks. Fruit grows in clusters under its leaves and tastes quite sweet. The palm branches, of course, signify victory, but now these were stripped bare. And the apple tree, which is probably the citron tree, citrus, sort of like a lemon, uh, very fragrant, uh, very fragrant uh, fruit, the apple or the citron tree, lemon tree perhaps. And indeed, notice it says, verse 12, after listing these, it says all the trees of the field are withered. Well, if that were to happen, how would you feel? What do you think you should do? Well, we find this, do we not? Verse 11, be ashamed. Be ashamed, be embarrassed. Because it is your sin, in this case, that has caused this. And also, verse 13, or howl, cry out, if you will. Cry out, you sons of men. The sons of men is another way here to referring to men. Notice that not only are the trees withered, but in point of fact, it's the joy that is withered. The joy has withered away from the sons of men. As we will see, again, not just because 
of those literal trees, but also because of their spiritual joy has withered away. Now in verses 2 and thirteen, two and 3, as we look at this total devastation of land, we want to come back to verses 2 and 3 to notice the extraordinary nature of this event. We are told here that the old men, the old men wouldn't have seen such a thing. The old men, hear this, you elders, here I think it's a reference just to old people, older people, but so that they would not have seen, has anything like this happened in your days? Or even in the days of your fathers? So hear this, you elders, but also all you inhabit, all of the people in the land should take notice, not just the older people, all of you should take notice. Furthermore, the story should be told to the fourth generation. You see that, verse 3? Okay, so you should pay attention. That's first generation. Tell your children about it, second generation. Let your children tell their children, third generation, and their children another generation. Four generations, at least a hundred years then, at least a hundred years, tell it to the next generation. Now, why tell this? This good old history here, right? Why tell this? Well, not just because of all the statistics that perhaps may be affiliated with it, but my friends, because of the horror because of the horror of it. Now, there was a, a book by uh, V. Carey Inman, a uh, commentary on a number of the minor prophets, and in his appendix, in an appendix, he refers to a book by Laura Ingalls Wilder. This one on the, you've heard of that authoress, this one uh, on the banks of Plum now, this is a fictional account, if you will. And so here there are grasshoppers. This is out in the, in the plains, of course. Here, there are ha- here are these grasshoppers. They're hatching out of the ground, green grasshoppers. The wind could not blow loud enough to hide the sound of their, law, of their jaws, nipping, gnawing, chewing. They ate all the green garden rows. They ate the green potato tops, they ate the grass and the little leaves and the green plum thickets and the small green plums. They ate the whole prairie bare and brown and they grew. They grew large and brown and ugly. Their big eyes bulged and their horny legs took them hopping everywhere. Thick over all the ground, they were hopping. And Laura and Mary stayed in the house. There was no rain. The days got hotter and hotter, uglier and uglier, and filled with the sound of grasshoppers until it seemed more than could be borne. Ma was sick. Her face was white and thin. She sat down tired as she spoke. Pa did not answer. For days he'd been going out and coming in with a still tight face. He did not sing or whistle anymore. It was worst of all when he did not answer Ma. 
He walked to the door and stood looking out. Even Carrie, that was a young child, young daughter, even Carrie was still. They could feel the heat of the day beginning and hear the grasshoppers. The grasshoppers were making a new sound. Laura ran to look out at them. Caroline said, there's a strange thing. Paul was excited. Here's a strange thing. Come look. All across the dooryard, the grasshoppers were walking shoulder to shoulder and end to end, so crowded that the ground seemed to be moving. Not a single one hopped. Not one turned its head. As fast as they could go, they were all walking west. Ma whispered, oh, if they could, would all go away. They all stood looking at that strange sight. Only Carrie climbed up, climbed onto her high chair and beat the table with her spoon. In a minute, Carrie, Ma said. I want my breakfast, Carrie shouted. Finally, Carrie shouted, almost crying, Ma, Ma. There, you shall have your breakfast, Ma said, turning around. Then she cried out. Grasshoppers were walking over Carrie. They came pouring in the eastern window, side by side and end to end, across the windowsill and down the wall and over the floor. They went up the legs of the table and the benches and Carrie's high stool, under the table and benches and over the table and benches and Carrie. They were walking west. Shut the window, said Mom. Laura ran on the grasshoppers to shut it. Paul said, better shut the upstairs windows. Grasshoppers are as... as thick walking up the east side of the house as they are on the ground and they are not going around the attic window they are in all up the wall and across the roof went the sound of their raspy claws crawling the house seemed full of them Ma and Laura swept them up and threw them out the western window none came in from the west the whole western side of the house was covered with grasshoppers that had walked over the roof and we're walking down to the ground and going on west with the others. They walked into Plum Creek and drowned, and those behind kept until dead grasshoppers choked the creek and filled the water, and live grasshoppers walked across on them. All day the sun beat hot on the house. All day it was full of a crawling sound that went up the wall and over the roof and down. All day grasshoppers' heads with bulging eyes and grasshoppers' legs clutching were thick along the bottom edge of the shut windows. All day they tried to walk up the sleep glass and fell back while thousands more pushed up and tried and fell. Can you imagine? you know why I entitled this sermon Creepy, Crawly, Gnawing, Munching, Locust. You see, it's not just the devastation. It's the horror. It's the horror of it that we have here in this vivid description by Laura Ingalls Wilder, but also that we can imagine in terms of the prophet Joel. Well, having seen the total devastation of the land, perhaps felt the total devastation of the land, we now, secondly, have the call to repentance. The call to repentance. And this call to repentance is because of the destruction. Notice verse 15. 
the day of the Lord is at hand. And alas, alas for the day. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Now, you know, we think of God all-powerful. We think that's a great thing. And indeed it is. We want a powerful God. It's the only true God, obviously. We want an all-powerful God. And people were inclined to, to relax in this divine attribute or characteristic. All, almighty. But in point of fact, they were rather to fear because it is the almighty God, the omnipotent God. It is his day that is coming. Matter of fact, there's a, a pun, there's a play on words here. The word for destruction is kashad. The word for almighty is mashadai. Perhaps you know El Shaddai, God Almighty, Lord Almighty. But kashad and mashadai, there's a play on words. There's a pun here in order to bring, in order to, to hammer home the point that it is the almighty God who is bringing this destruction. Verse 16, the meat or the food is cut off before our eyes. But notice also verse 16, not only is that true, not only do we not have have, um, food in the grocery store or the corner store, but joy and gladness is cut off from the house of our God. Notice the plants, verses 17, 19, and the end of 20. Seed is rotten under their claws. Garners are laid desolate. The barns are broken down. The corn is withered. Fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The pastures in the the cool areas that should always be green, yet in point of fact, fire has done, which could be a reference to the sun bearing down, but whatever. And flame then has burned all the trees of the field. Notice the animals, verses 18 and 20. The beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed. You know, even the dumb cows know better than God's people do. You know that? Even the, even the animals, Isaiah tells us, even the animals know better. They understand instinctively the judgment of God. Notice also the flocks of sheep and the beasts of the field being, being affected. And finally, in this regard, verse 20, even the rivers of waters are dried up. The only hope, for humanly speaking, for reviving and refreshment was the water, and it's gone. My friend, surely, surely, this is an extraordinary judgment. It's out of the ordinary. It is total devastation. And so, because of this, there is, of course, the call to repent to cry out to God for mercy in terms of his judgment. But also notice the religious exercises, the religious devotions that we are called to here. Verses 14 and 19a. First of all, verse 14. Consecrate or sanctify, set apart, in other words, a fast. But what is fasting? Well, it's an ancient practice of abstaining from food and or water. 
fasting was specified for the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16 and Leviticus 23. It says, sanctify a fast, which means, of course, set it apart, but I would suggest that it's also reference to sanctification, the fact that we are to be sanctified as well. Not only sanctify, consecrate a fast, but call a public or a sacred assembly. So public worship. This followed from the fasting. There was to be public profession of and lamentation for sin and for God's judgment that came as a result. This is why you have days of fasting historically. We all know about the day of thank the first it was days of Thanksgiving with the uh, with the pilgrims in 16, uh, 1621 after they had survived that terrible winter of 1620 and 21 there in what is today Massachusetts, Plymouth Bay Colony, and they had survived, so they had the harvest feast. But you know there were times then later on where they were suffering, and they didn't call a day of thanksgiving, they called for a day of fasting. And so, call this solemn assembly, engage in this worship, have this, not only your fasting in your families and as individuals, but now also this public profession of and grieving for sin. Notice that the elders are to show the way. Notice that it is the elders, verse 14. I think here this is a reference more formally at this point. Gather the elders. Gather the elders. They are to show the way that we would say the presbyters. But all the inhabitants, all the people were to be involved. All the inhabitants of the land were to be involved gathered into the house of the Lord your God. And therefore, cry unto the Lord. It is a deep, heartfelt, sincere crying out to God. I'll come back to that point in just a moment, but right now, the, the one point I want to make here is that it is possible It is possible to keep up outward appearance of religion, priests, sacrifices, and so forth, public worship, and yet miss the heart of the matter. The danger of hypocrisy. Well, I have five points of application today. The first is this. Heed the need pay attention to, heed the need for transgenerational spirituality. That's a fancy way of saying not only should you be concerned about yourself, but you should be concerned about your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. And there's a need here, there's a necessity to pass along spiritual knowledge and wisdom from one generation to another. And so, this is something we need to be aware of. And we need need to, to think about 
our children and grandchildren and so forth. Pass along that spiritual knowledge and wisdom. This is what is expected. This is what apparently we find here with Pethuel passing along that religious commitment, that commitment to the Lord, passing it along to Joel, whose name means the Lord is God. Secondly, do not ignore God's extraordinary judgments. Do not ignore God's extraordinary judgments. There are some things that just cannot be ignored. Notice verse 16 here. Verse 16. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Believe your eyes. You know? Believe what you're seeing is what the prophet is saying. And a person is especially hardened if he cannot understand the judgment that is before his very eyes. If he is so blind, if you will, if he is so, uh, if, if his conscience is so seared that he doesn't get it, that this is the hand of God that is that is doing My friends, if God should bring catastrophe and disaster upon us, do not run like And there could be many disasters awaiting us. There's a real concern about water in the western part of the United States. Did you know that? Lake Mead, Lake Powell, or draining. What about the food? We've already seen a little bit of this by going to Walmart and seeing the empty shelves. There is real concern, largely because of manipulation by wicked leaders in Europe and America. There is real concern with regard to food supply. I'm trying to scare anybody. I'm not saying we're all going to starve. But on the other hand, we need to be aware. This could happen. I'm not saying it will but it very well could happen. We could see all kinds of turmoil, war in our streets, not just mostly peaceful protests, far more serious things. We could see this. Catastrophes, natural catastrophes, man-made catastrophes. And if these things do happen to us, and they might. If God should bring that, we dare not think, well, this is just the natural course of things. It is not. It is God, the Almighty, bringing his judgment upon this nation that is ripe for destruction. So do not ignore God's extraordinary judgments. Number three, be reminded of the necessity to go above, to transcend the merely material in favor of the spiritual. Now, some of you all know who the Gnostics were. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S, the Gnostics. The Gnostics are the ones who said, oh, material, material reality is bad, spirit is, is good, only spirit. Well, I'm not suggesting a Gnostic type of attitude. Nevertheless, there must not 
be a giving over of ourselves to the pleasures of this life. Furthermore, our creature comforts are uncertain. We are here today and gone tomorrow. Even if you should be able to gather the grain into the barn, the barn could burn down. And as I mentioned before, even the brute beasts, the beasts of the field, cry to God as if they have that natural instinct, Isaiah chapter 1. How much more must we recognize who it is that provides our daily food? We sang earlier from Psalm 35. That's a psalm that is often sung at places like uh, White Lake uh, Covenanter Camp up in New York before the, the blessing on the food. Often they will sing 145 verse 15, the eyes of all upon thee wait, their food in season thou dost give. Thine open hand you satisfy the wants of all on earth that live. And so there must be a that provides our daily food. We must look beyond just the devastation, just the, the material, and recognize that it is God who is the one. It is the Almighty who is the one in heaven who provides even our daily food. But in that regard, as we, as we need to go above the merely material in favor of the spiritual, notice verse 14. What was the worst thing that was happening? The worst thing was not all the devastation to the trees, the beasts, and so forth. The worst thing was that they were not offering worship to God in his temple. That was the worst thing. Verse 13. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. And therefore you need to come, all you elders and all you inhabitants of the land, you need to be called to public worship you need to go into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. You need to have that verse 16, that joy and gladness that you experience from the house of God. So, the necessity to go above just the material things to look spiritually. Fourthly, remember, remember, Christ and his sacrifice is the basis for our salvation. Remember Christ and his sacrifice as the basis for our salvation. We call upon the Lord by means of prayer in the house of prayer. Remember how Jesus spoke of the temple being in a house of prayer and the, the, uh, how he was uh, righteously indignant and drove out the money changers you have made it a den of these. This is to be a house of prayer. And so we call upon the Lord by means of prayer in the house of prayer. We assemble in his temple. Today we would say in his church. That is to say not physical building, but the people of God, which is a type of Christ. And his righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, is our only protection against the day of the Lord when it comes. It, it, 
why the house of the Lord? Why the temple? Not only because it's the house of prayer, it's the place of sacrifice. It's where all those animals were killed. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And therefore, we need the blood of Jesus. You think it's bad when locusts swarm and chomp and destroy? My friends, you ain't seen nothing yet. Fear the day of the Lord. The final, the judgment, the final day that is coming. And in that day, there's only one hope that you have. And that is to be found in Christ. To be united with Christ. Who was pointed to by means of the temple. And all those sacrifices of lambs, goats, sheep, bulls. Remember Christ and his sacrifice is the basis for our salvation. And fifthly, make sure you have a genuine desire to reach out to God. The prophet here proclaims, O Lord, to thee will I cry. O Lord, to thee I will cry. It is a fervent, fervent storming of the gates of heaven. But it is a cry that reaches out in faith to God for relief and grace. Notice the intensity that is expected. Fasting. Lamentation. Lying all night in sackcloth. Not only that, but verse 11. Be ashamed, you farmers, as well as wail, you vine dressers. Shame. Crying out to the Lord means that we own our guilt and our shame. And that we cry out with the very fiber of our being. And my friends, when you lament and mourn, Grieve and look to Christ, you will be led back to gladness and joy. Amen. Do you please stand for prayer? And now, our Father, we pray that this message would be applied to our hearts by means of thy Holy Spirit. Give us the grace, O Lord, truly and sincerely to cry out to you, to mourn not just the results of our sin, the consequences of our sin, but Lord, to grieve our sin itself. So give us that grace, hardness of our sins, and accept us through Christ in whom we have forgiveness, and through whom we are able to worship, by whom we experience joy, gladness, now and forevermore. Amen.